0: Law, policy, and markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Alexandra Johnson, a partner and practice group leader in Milbank's Transportation and Space Group, as well as the lead instructor and creator of the Deals at Milbank Transactional Training Program for Junior Associates, based in New York. Let's get to it. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to get together today.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So you've taken the initiative and organized, create, and lead a training program at Millbank for junior associates in the transactional departments, which we call Deals at Millbank. What led you to kick that off?
1: Interestingly, it actually followed a really sort of organic path. As many people know, we've always done a fantastic job on the litigation side, having a very structured training program. But there are fewer of those opportunities on the transactional side. And I think for a long time, the transactional training was actually just done apprentice style. So I think Milbank recognized that void and said, we really need to offer training for our lawyers on the transactional side. And just like we do on the litigation side, fortunately for me, when I took a little time off after my first child was born, it involved reconnecting with my roots at Duke University and I was offered the opportunity to design a class at Duke that was essentially practical skills for someone who wanted to do finance transactions. And that class followed a transaction from term sheet stage through drafting documents. So that was a whole semester for students. When Millbank said, we need to design this training program on the transactional side, One of my mentors who happened to be sitting on the committee said, well, I think I know someone who can help. And the good news is she already works here. So he reached out to me and said, would you be interested in helping structure this training curriculum, which of course I was really excited to do. And that's where it began. And I believe that was 2015, the large goal of the training program is to help them take a breath and in a pedagogical setting, say, I've done all of these different things. How does it all fit together? And so we sit down and we walk through uh, some rules of drafting. We walk through a term sheet. We talk about the business concepts. And then we work in groups. And then as a larger group and turn this term sheet into document. And then they get the opportunity to negotiate with their counterparts in the room and revise the document. And so we spend a few days where they all get to kind of contribute, but it's a safe environment, no risks, kind of fun because they get to do a little role playing and they get to put it all in order.
0: So I know from my own experience teaching at a law school, there's a difference between a classroom setting and sitting in a conference room on a high floor in a high rise with your colleagues and employer It's not purely vocational. I mean, I think that the students, if you will, the associate attorneys bring to it a lot of their real world experience without the worry of disclosing confidential secrets. Right. Because obviously within the law firm's walls, one can discuss the matters that we do for clients. How else do you find it different?
1: That's a good question. I think, I mean, first... There is such a significant difference between someone in their third year of law school and someone who's entering their second year of practice. That period of time goes by so quickly, but the attorneys learn so much during that period of time. So they really turned into a business person and a lawyer, even if they don't realize it. So there's a completely different level of understanding. With law students, I constantly find that they're in sort of exam writing mode, meaning they won't take a position they'll show you both sides of the argument and we know as transactional attorneys you can't just present both sides to your clients they want advice they want you to explain to them what's the stronger argument what's what's the weaker position so to see the attorneys actually beginning to be able to make those judgment calls and actually what's i think really important for them is as first years and it does continue into the second year I find working with the younger attorneys, they're afraid to make judgment calls. Here in law school, they've been kind of on top of the world. They're clearly smart and they're accomplished and they're ambitious. And then they get into practice and they don't want to commit something that's wrong. And they're concerned about taking a risk. And I think they don't know if someone's going to check their work closely enough. So if they make a mistake, maybe it goes by unnoticed and then that's their, they've done something wrong. So I find a lot of bubbles in the margins. I, I thought about this, I thought about that, but I did And so what I talked to them about in the classroom is in our classroom here is you're a lawyer now. There's a reason you're at Millbank. You've accomplished a lot. You've got to ha- have confidence in that. Uh, and you have to trust your supervising attorneys that we're not going to leave you by yourself doing a deal without review. And we'd like you to start making judgment calls because that's how you work your analytical skills and that's how you refine them. So I think that interestingly, you kind of see that while law students lack some practical knowledge that our attorneys have, they in a way have some confidence because they're protected in the academic world. And then our attorneys get a little bit anxious about committing to something. And so we actually talk a lot about making judgment calls, feeling confident in it. If you think through an issue and you come up with your determination and you're right, all's well. If you're wrong, I want you to be able to tell me why did you make that judgment call? And if you say, well, I actually didn't know, so I just I just didn't change anything. I just left it the way it was because I didn't know. Well, that is disappointing. But when I talk to an associate and I say, why did you not make a change here? Why did you make a change here? And they say, well, I thought it through and this is my analysis. And I say, well, that's good analysis. It's not the right outcome here, but this is why. Then they learn. But sometimes, and I tell associates this all the time, sometimes they open my eyes to something that I hadn't thought about. And that young attorney perspective is something that is actually pretty valuable to a deal. The questions they can ask are really helpful to wrenching us out of our, the way we think about things and have been thinking about things for decades and thinking about things more creatively. So I guess I didn't directly respond to your question. I think in some ways in our Milbank classroom, the attorneys are less confident than they were as students, but it is fascinating to see how much they have learned in a really short period of time. And law students just don't have that. They're coming at it from a completely different perspective.
0: Yeah. I wonder if the difference in confidence about making judgment calls is maybe an awareness that there's more at stake when someone's hiring you to give them legal advice.
1: Yeah. I think that's right. And I think it goes to the transaction, being concerned about making the wrong call for the transaction, being concerned about making the wrong call for their own job, retaining their job and making sure people know they're a good attorney. And of course, it's great to hear that they see all the sides of the issues, but we know that we have to actually Put a decision into the document when we're presenting it. So if they don't do that, we have to take the time to go back and do it. And we probably should just do it ourselves in the first place. And that doesn't, that's not good for anybody. So I think it's giving them that the license to start making those decisions. And of course, you have to trust your supervising attorneys because they should be able to make decisions, make mistakes and have us catch them, not worry that they're just going to go unreviewed and into the world.
0: That's right. Apart from that quality control aspect of the transactional practice, I want to come back to two other things you are suggested by what you said. One of them is the idea that judgment is part of what a client's paying for and that decisiveness, that ability to understand different options, consider all of them, weigh them appropriately in the context of a particular transaction, and then come up with a recommendation, a reasoned recommendation or maybe follow on questions of things that need to be learned. That's a very difficult skill to teach. The other is creativity. You mentioned being surprised by what a younger associate might come up with. And sometimes the a question of why is it this way? Why can't they do this or that or the other? It can result in some creative out-of-the-box thinking that really is something else that clients are usually paying for too. They're hiring lawyers for judgment and creativity much more than they are hiring someone to just, as a scribe, write down on a piece of paper what the terms of the deal might be. How do you explain or bring into the law firm classroom setting the commercial context that leads to the confidence in order to reason, have that judgment and exercise it and come up with creative solutions to to, to complicated problems?
1: I completely agree with you. and I'm sure you see this in the classroom as well. Some things that we've taken for granted and we completely understand and know subconsciously, someone asking you to articulate an answer to why is this sentence in this document, and you and I both would know that sentence has been in every document we've ever seen in our careers. So it started, and you never really thought about the answer, but, but you have to respond. And so thinking through those things help. I feel like I learn every time I teach somebody else something, which of course is the best, right? And that is one of the best ways to learn is by trying to teach somebody else. So both in the university classroom, as well as at Millbank itself. So I definitely appreciate those opportunities. I think when we're talking about it in the classroom, the way I structure the class is you know, we, we kick off with a little bit of a little bit of a lecture. Here's why drafting is important, and it's I've been challenged by law students to say I hear what you're saying, but does it really matter? And it absolutely matters at writing as a lawyer is a complete discipline. And if you don't practice that discipline well, there's a ton of liability associated with it. I always say to lawyers, if you aren't drafting well or you make a mistake, it's not the right reason to worry about it. But there's always the liability, the dollar signs, like you said, lots of zeros at the end that are on the hook. The right reason in a transactional setting, I think, for being a good drafter is things shouldn't go wrong in your deal. And if they don't go wrong in your deal, what you're doing is writing the playbook for the parties involved in the transaction. And what you want them to know how to do is how to live the deal the right way, the way that they agreed to commercially live the deal. If we don't draft it well, they don't know. So I always find one of the most disappointing calls to get after I close a deal is the one where the client says, so I want to do this. And I was looking at the documents and I don't know if I can. So tell me whether I can or not, sometimes it's a, it's an easy answer and you're, you th- that's okay. Sometimes you look towards and you say, I wish that we had been a little bit more clear on this. So I think that's the right reason to be a good disciplined drafter and it makes all the difference in the world. So we start off with these basic rules of drafting And then they get a term sheet and we have them divided into sides of the transaction. And so they get some facts that the other side doesn't have, which are, of course, strategically placed to create issues and create trickier moments. and to either imply or state motivations or incentives from their non-existent client. And so they've got this background information where they've got a toy with those ideas, and then that has to get turned into the drafting. And you can hear them when they're negotiating, when they're discussing within their own smaller drafting group, how do we work this into the draft? If it's something they don't want to reveal, but they need to incorporate it, how do we put it in there in a way that's subtle? accomplishes our goal doesn't raise this sort of the suspicions of the other side. So the way that I do it in the classroom is by creating the file for them so that they have to review it. And that file changes over the course of a few days as we're working together. That, that is the beauty of kind of being able to do it live in the classroom. It's very easy to do that. And so they'll get additional facts that throw curveballs in. Sometimes with associates in practice, I find teaching this it comes over time. One thing I explained to them is you're not a conduit of information. So when I see associates get asked a question by a client, and then they go try to figure out the answer from a local counsel, the local counsel gives them a response and they just pass it right through the client without recommendation without contextualizing it, without letting the client know, this is the way we think about what we just heard. So you can decide. That's disappointing to see. So we have to put a a stop at that moment. So I see that email go back and forth. And the first thing I do is go to the client and let them know that we wanted to pass along the information, but we'll follow up with a little bit of analysis. And then I go to the associate and I say, they don't know what to make of that. We are in the market. We see these deals all the time. We can give them that added value. Uh, we just heard this from local council. It's consistent with what we've heard in the past from other local councils or in other transactions. So we think it's probably sound advice to follow, or that is something that is not necessarily consistent across all transactions. So you can decide, is it acceptable here or is it something you want to challenge a little bit? So the teaching associates that our job is not to just pass information back and forth, not just to be a scrivener. We have to take what the client is giving us and incorporate those things into the documents. But think, in this circumstance, does there need to be more? Does this have a knock-on consequence somewhere else in the document? That's all of it. That's what we're responsible for, that 365 degrees. and so. I think it's pretty easy in the deal flow to do that because you just have to really listen to what your associates are doing and work with them in the moment so that they can understand that part of the responsibility in the classroom. It's a little more accelerated and we're able to do press those levers with kind of fun facts along the way.
0: Yeah, I'm going to unpack something in there, too, because it's not just this analytical overlay that is is coming in when you're teaching drafting and teaching negotiation, but also kind of this first breaking it down into steps. Like so for in drafting, you look at the contract, you're preparing it. Maybe you have a model from a prior transaction and you're going to adapt it for the same client, but in a different context, the different parties across the table. And in doing that thoughtfully, sometimes I'll tell a junior lawyer, the first time you go through the contract, make sure that it expresses how the deal should, would work if everybody does what they're supposed to do and the stars align and the world is wonderful. Like, does the basic plumbing work? Does the money get from A to B in the paths that it's supposed to go? And the second one is, well, things don't work out. Someone breaches a contract or the, the context that commercially changes. Is it clear from the contract how you can work out that without having a dispute, especially one where you have to resort to a third party, like litigation or some kind of arbitration process, to resolve that dispute? Is it clear from the contract how the parties can work it out or when they need a consent or when they need a waiver or something else? So that clarity in the drafting is one part of it. But you're tying it to negotiation because as you're teaching both of them, I think there's a cognizance that what happens in the real world is that drafting is sort of the memos, the notes from the meetings where people are discussing and where the two sides are finding sometimes a middle ground, sometimes just a new ground, sometimes they're creating collaboratively a mutually beneficial business arrangement, and I don't think you can divorce teaching drafting from teaching negotiation, because at the end of the day, they're largely the same thing. You're bringing those together, and then that third piece is you're doing it in a market context, right? Because people are not just doing deals in a vacuum. They're trying to do it in a competitive market. Money's a commodity, but everything else isn't. And how do you, within that, stay within the guardrails of what the parties would expect but still find something which is creative for both and it creates value for both sides. So how do you bring in that commercial context as well?
1: When I say we start off kind of talking about general drafting rules, the next thing we do before we actually get into the hypothetical is we go through the anatomy of a contract. And this is all of our transactional associates. So we've got M&A lawyers, capital market lawyers, different finance lawyers. We occasionally have our financial restructuring associates join. So People coming from all different practices, but the fundamental building blocks of a contract are the same. So we can talk about what I would call the action provisions, which are the buy-sell or the make-a-loan borrow the money, and then we can move into conditions, precedent, representations, and warranties, covenants, and events of default and remedies, all of these things, termination provisions. So we talk about all of that so that they understand what the framework is. And we talk about how we as lawyers, maybe when we're dreaming of being lawyers, we're just thinking of the negotiation and the the sophisticated, complex aspects of the deal but we do everything in the contract, like you said. We're the plumbers. We're the ones who make sure that oh, the drawdown time is three business days before by noon. Well, we've got a bunch New York time. We've got a bunch of European banks that essentially changes things for them. So we have to think through, does this actually work from a practical perspective? So I think sometimes... The younger attorneys are surprised that they have to think at that very mechanical level, but then we also have to think at the much higher level of risk and building that into our provisions. And then, like you said, the practical overlay, both the operations of our clients and how do these provisions work for them and the market context that we have to bring to the deals. The value of a firm like Milbank is that we know the market. That's, I think, why a lot of clients do value us because we'll bring that market perspective. They may not want to follow the market, but they certainly want to know where the market is so that they can make that judgment call. And that's the hardest part for the younger attorneys is they don't they don't have that context of the market. They haven't seen it evolve over 20 years or five years or even two years. So they don't have that benchmark yet. In in the deals at Millbank program, that's the hardest part to introduce. What I love to see is when my fact patterns kind of have an element in them that doesn't really make sense if you don't understand the market and you have associates who raise their hand and say, Can you explain to me like why is this a fact here? Why why is this impactful? I think they've got the instinct that there's something more going on that would actually in the real world make this fact extra relevant. So I like to see that. But for the younger associates, I think the market is the hardest part to incorporate in the training there is discussion about it so that they're aware it's important and this is why having associates sit in on as many phone calls as they can as many negotiations as they can so important because we talk about the market constantly when we're doing deals so they'll hear us saying things over and over i'm sure it's the same for you but i discuss with my clients the way the market has evolved normally when i'm talking about what the market is it normally is preceded by where we come from so they get that information in practice but it's harder to incorporate in the training. We try to make them aware it's a thing. And I think some of the most perceptive attorneys do recognize it's in the facts. They just, they don't know what it is, but when they raise their hand, it gives me the opportunity to explain it to them and to explain to the entire room, that aspect of the transaction and in part the particular hypothetical, what it would be. And that sensitivity to knowing it exists and is an important part of what we do, I think is the most important part, point for them to get about that at that stage.
0: There's also, I'm going to say, softer skills that are hard to impart, I think. And one of them, for example, is collaboration. And I mentioned in the previously kind of this idea of collaborating among the different parties to the transaction, because unlike litigation, parties are there by choice and they have the ability to persuade each other of something which works for everyone. But also within the legal teams that the associates are assigned to internally, there's very little solitary work. It's not like the image some people have that, well, gee, the lawyer gets the question. She goes into her office and she researches it and comes out with the answer and makes the recommendation and writes the contract. Like, But the, you're not doing that alone. What's really happening is a lot of teamwork, a lot of creative synthesis of information together, both among the lawyers on the team and with the client. How do you teach that kind of collaboration, which may be different than what a lot of them had in their academic settings in law school?
1: I think it's really different than what people experience in law school. And I know people have study groups in law school and do have some of those outlets, but law school is a very consolatory exercise. So I do think that this is very different. When they're in the training sessions, we've set them up from the very beginning so that they're in what we call pods. So it's three to four lawyers together and we intentionally mix up lawyers so they're across practice groups, across geography, so they're getting the opportunity to work with people they don't know as well, to see and hear experiences that are different than their own. So they they get to do that. I find that having the opportunity to go into the quote unquote classroom after working for a year, that's pretty stressful because there's so much They never feel comfortable. They never know what's going on. I remember as a first year, you just constantly learning new things and never feeling like I got it this time. I totally know what we're doing here. So I think coming into the classroom after that year and the comfort of kind of being in their kind of final place that they'll practice, I think they really embrace that opportunity to go back to school and to have a little bit of fun with it. And they enjoy getting together and we. At Millbank, of course, is a summer associates. Their class, and they get to know each other really well. And they come back as first years, and they have intro training, and they reconnect. And then, as they go through their rotations, I think it's nice for them to come back into the room together. And so they break up into these little pods, and it, they have fun with it, and I really appreciate the opportunity to lead these sessions because I get to know every class of rising second years that we have. So to the extent I haven't encountered them as a first year or summer associate, it's an opportunity to get to know them because I spend that time in the classroom. So I think because they're so happy to be back together again, the collaboration comes really naturally. And then we model it at Millbank all the time. So they're seeing it when they're in practice groups. I think within my own practice group, we as partners are constantly popping into each other's offices to hash through points and associates see us doing that, hear us doing that, you know, with our special counsel, with our senior associates, with our mid-levels, and the junior associates get to be a part of that too. And of course, I emphasize to the classroom at the time, to me, Millbank. Is a singular firm, even though we have several offices. There are some law firms that have offices around the world and they each operate like their own little law firm. That's not been my experience at Melbank. And what's really valuable about that aspect of Melbank's character is that I can call someone in a different office. And this has been true since I was an associate. So it's not just that a partner can do it, but I can call somebody in another office and they've never met me before and they'll take the time to go through a question that I have. And and that collaboration is priceless to to how we learn as lawyers, but to our clients as well. Because I always know that if my client has a question that I can't answer, I'm going to find the answer within MailBank. So I can say to them, no problem. Let me get back to you. I don't have to say, well, I'm not sure. Let me check. That's really important. So we talk a lot about that. And I think they recognize those relationships in the, in their class that they have. That's the start of their network at Millbank, And they're just going to grow that from there. So they seem pretty excited about it.
0: Yeah, I think also one of the things that comes out of it is they get to learn when they should be reaching out to specialized lawyers or in specialist practices. So if you have that culture of, gee, it's, it's okay not to know the answer. Just yes. let's figure out who would who does know the answer and, and find a way to reach out to them. So if there's issues that might be implicated in one of the exercises for deals at Millbank, where you need tax advice or you need environmental advice or you need antitrust advice or whatever it might be, there are lawyers with more specialized legal experience that can perhaps address those provisions that are being either negotiated or drafted.
1: I totally agree. And I think that's a really important point to emphasize to them because I think they feel a lot of pressure. Not really feeling comfortable that they know much of anything that they should actually know the answer to everything at some point. And so it doesn't occur to them sometimes that the answer is I get to go seek out the advice from somebody else, whether it's within my practice group, but more importantly, like you said, our specialists around, around the firm and that's, that becomes part of your deal team. So we emphasize that in my particular practice group, which has access to so many different specialists because our deals implicate so many different things, which is really fun for us to work with the other attorneys, but not everyone has that same experience. So, and I think the lawyers sitting together from different practice groups, they suddenly realize, oh, this is what you do. I get it. And then when something comes up in the future and they say, well, who does that is, is people in our leverage finance group. And I know that my summer office mate is in a leverage finance group. I'm going to give them a call and that's where they start. And it's really great to see that collaboration. It starts right away. They build that network right away.
0: One of the things that, question that uh, law students have asked, and I think some of our junior associates may have similar I would not say concerns, but interests, is how technology is changing what it is junior lawyers actually do on a daily basis. I know one of the law students I was talking to asked the question, well, gee, with AI and so forth, is, is that going to do law firms even need all these junior associates? And my answer was absolutely. But what they're doing is changing, just as it changed when junior lawyers stopped stuffing fedex envelopes for distributions and stop doing manual red lines to compare changes in a document you no longer do you need a law degree to do that right so as the tools for ai can be deployed for improving contracts for consistency or maybe assisting in due diligence and risk spotting it's not a substitute for what the lawyer does it's a tool to make that lawyer more productive and free them up for things which are higher value it also means though that as you start your practice and you're thrown into the deep end. It's not sink or swim. You are going to get training. You are going to get quality and supervision, but the water is deeper because you're much more, like I would say earlier in your career, there's a greater demand for you to do the things that are higher value add that technology alone cannot do.
1: I totally agree. And I think as I get older, of course, there's always... The feeling like you might want to sort of resist it and say, no, what I do cannot be done by AI. I think it will get there. I, but I agree with you that for now it can really help solve one of the more elementary aspects of what we do. And it is a tool that actually provides a massive amount of value to us. And one of the hardest parts of being an associate, I say to people, I don't think what we do is actually that hard in substance. I think what's challenging, especially as you're starting out is all of the things you're responsible for. So you have to make sure the grammar is perfect. There are no spelling mistakes. The cross-references are right. The defined terms are right. And you have to then understand the business concepts and make sure you covered them all and make sure the document works internally. And then with all the other documents, that's just a lot to keep track of. So some of these things can be taken care of. And I don't think you can, uh, definitely not at this stage, rely entirely on it. So there's still proofreading to be done. But when you know Mm -hmm. that there's something consistency of grammar and and things like that are being pretty reliably done. So the read through that you do is probably a bit of an easier read through. That's less time spent there, more time spent on the other stuff. And like you said, we can redirect and start focusing people on the bigger, more exciting things sooner. I think their trajectory becomes much steeper. So, But first and foremost, they've got to conquer those really f- easy fundamental skills, but while they're managing the rest of the things that they're learning. So I think you're right. I think we we're going to experience a lightening of the load at that level. And it is really the FedEx envelope of yesterday. And I think that's okay. It, but our what we get to do here is unique. And for the moment, I think is hard for people to rely on AI. Again, I'm not sure if it's going to stay that way, but, uh, but we add a lot of value that's that can't be substituted yet. But it's exciting for the the younger associates to get to do that sooner.
0: Absolutely. Alex, thanks very much for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun.
0: Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Milbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at milbank.com.